Amen. Let's bow our heads for prayer, shall we? Thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this Sabbath we've been enjoying together in your presence. We thank you so much for the privilege of studying your holy word that is a map that shows us the way. And dear God, Lord, tonight's message is one that is so, so strong and difficult. But Lord, we pray that you'd give us a teachable spirit tonight. That as we discuss the wine of Babylon, that you'd guide our thoughts, that you'd guide my words, that you'd give us a soft and sensitive spirit, that we might receive and respond to this message that we might embrace it and that we might follow Jesus. Please, dear God, speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> As I mentioned in my prayer, tonight's message is one that is very difficult. We're dealing with the wine of Babylon, an organized system of confusion that God exposes in His Word with no uncertain terms. In fact, God uses very strong language in dealing with this system. It's a system of deception. And I want us to notice it's not just a worldwide warning, but it's also an invitation. Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Revelation chapter 14 as we read the final message given to the whole world just before the Lord Jesus returns. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 14, beginning with verse 6. <clears throat> we find the three angels' messages, the everlasting gospel of Christ. Revelation 14 and verse 6, the Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, what is that next word? Gospel. And what does the word gospel mean? Remind me. It means good news. So, Keep that in mind, friends. Tonight, this topic, even though it's very strong, it's a part of the everlasting gospel, the eternal gospel, the gospel of Christ, which isn't bad news, scary news, doom and gloom news, but it is good news. And it says, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Then verse 8, it says, There followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. How many times did it say it's fallen? Twice. Keep that in mind. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she, because who? So notice, friends, that Babylon is fallen twice, it's a great city, and it's also personified as a she or a woman. It says, she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So here we find that a part of the everlasting gospel message of the last days, which isn't bad news but good news as we established, is a very strong warning against a system called Babylon, which is both a city and a woman that has fallen twice because she made all nations of the world become drunk. That's 
spiritually intoxicated with the wine of her fornication. <clears throat> now, friends, when God says something, it's important the first time he says it. But when God repeats something twice, it's because it's very important and God is trying to emphasize something. And this same warning against Babylon is actually repeated the second time in Revelation 18, verses 1 through 4. So notice as we go to Revelation 18, where we find a reiteration of the fall of Babylon. Revelation 18, verse 1, it says, And after these things I saw another angel, a messenger, coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a what kind of voice? A strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. How many times? Twice. And has become the habitations of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So again, God repeats that this system called Babylon, which is a city and a woman at the same time, that has caused all people to become drunk with her wine of false doctrine that led to spiritual fornication, God says even stronger that this woman has become the habitations of devils. And then in verse 4, the invitation of mercy is given. Verse 4 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her. What are the next two words? <clears throat> My people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So very interesting, friends. In Revelation 18, the Bible is almost finished by this time. And one of the last messages given to the whole world before the end is a strong warning against Babylon and how it's fallen twice. And then God invites His people to come out of her, which tells us something very interesting, that God has some of His people in this system. But He doesn't want them to stay there because this system is going to be destroyed. It's become the habitations of devils, friends. And I want you to notice the Apostle Paul warned us of the same thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, please write it down. 1 Timothy 4, 1, now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, that means the last days, some shall depart from the faith. And why are they going to depart from the faith? It says, giving heed to what kind of spirits? Seducing spirits and doctrines of what? So the Bible tells us that in the last days, there will be people who have the faith of God, but they're going to depart from it. Why? Because they're going to be deceived by seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. And this is what Babylon is all about. All about. The Bible says that Babylon has become the habitations of devils. Every false doctrine and, and, and seducing spirit is in this system, the Bible tells us, is fallen. Now remember, friends, God says, come out of her, my people, which shows that God has some of his people in this system. In fact, many of God's children are part of this system, and they don't even realize it. And let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that you're God's people? Do you believe you're God's people? Amen. Amen. Now, 
if we believe that we're God's people, and according to the Bible, God has some of his people in Babylon, could it be possible that some of us tonight are in Babylon? Could that be possible, yes or no? Of course, friends, if we believe that we're God's people, and if God still has some of his people in Babylon, it could be possible that some of us are in Babylon. And he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to come out. And if that's the case, do you think it's important to know exactly who Babylon is? Yes or no? Friends, if we don't know who Babylon is, then we don't know if we're in it. And if we don't know if we're in it, we're not going to know that we need to come out of it. And the reason why God calls his people to come out is because he loves the people. He's against the system, but he loves the people in the system. Many of them are his people that are sincere, living up to all the light they have. But he wants them to come out because Babylon is not going to be converted. Babylon is going to be destroyed. It's going to fall. And when you think about it, if you're in a building and that building is about to fall and you remain in the building, what's going to happen to you? You're going to perish. And that's the reason why God says, come out of her, my people. Now, tonight we're going to expose and examine the identity of Babylon in the book of Revelation. We find that in Revelation, there's a contrast of two women. There's a woman in white and a woman in red. And these two women represent a church, friends, God's pure church, and in contrast, the apostate church system. We already established that before, over and over again in the Bible. The symbol God uses to liken a church is a woman. He is the heavenly husband. He's the bridegroom. We are the earthly bride. Revelation describes two types of women representing two types of churches, God's pure church, the, the pure bride of Christ, and then this harlot woman, which represents an apostate church, a church that has not remained faithful to Jesus Christ as her husband. And it's this woman, this harlot woman, that the Bible identifies as Babylon. Remember, Babylon was a city, but it was also personified as a she or a woman. And that's who the Bible is referring to. Notice Revelation 17, 5, it tells us, Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, what is her name? Babylon the Great, the mother of what? Harlots and what? Abominations of the earth. And so when the Bible warns us against Babylon, it's referring to this apostate church system. She is called Babylon. And she is a woman that's a harlot. Now, I know that's, that's a very strong word, friends, but that's the word that God uses to depict apostasy and unfaithfulness to Him. Now, I want us to notice what the Bible tells us concerning when a woman and a beast come together. In Leviticus 18, verse 23, the Bible says, Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is what? <clears throat> it's confusion. So we find in Revelation 17, this woman riding upon a beast. And according to Leviticus, whenever those two come together, it's confusion. Why? Because this woman, this church, spreads spiritual confusion to the world. In other words, we're getting some identifying characteristics of Babylon it's, a, it's an organized system of spiritual confusion. And that's what has caused all nations to become drunk 
or spiritually confused with the wine of her false doctrine and lies. Now, in order to find out who Babylon is in Revelation, we first have to go back to the Old Testament to get the context because remember, the book of Revelation is built upon the broad foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures. Do you remember that? And friends, when you go back to the Old Testament, you find that there was a literal city or kingdom that was called Babylon. And Babylon was a kingdom that was the epitome of rebellion against God. If you look up the word Babylon in the Bible, Babylon is always likened or, 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 or synonymous with disobedience and persecution of God's people, pride and idolatry. And so this kingdom called Babylon was a literal kingdom in the Old Testament. And God tells us in Revelation there's going to be a spiritual Babylon in the last days that will do the same thing that the Old Testament kingdom of Babylon did to God and His people. You see, Babylon was a man-made system of religion, of false religion. You remember we studied in Daniel chapter 2 about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, received of the man made of different metals. Do you remember that? We studied that the second night out here. And the head was of gold and the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron and feet are of iron and clay. And you remember what that dream represented? It was a divine timeline, a timeline of the kingdoms that would reign from Daniel's day, from the time of Babylon to the, to the last day. And Daniel said to the king, thou art this head of gold. In other words, the gold upon the image would represent the Babylonian kingdom as well as the king. This was a dream that was given by God himself. It was a divine dream from God. Now, it's interesting that the king, when he understood the interpretation of the dream, he knew clearly that he was the head of gold. But what he did in the very next chapter, Daniel chapter 3, that same king made the same image that he received from God in the dream, but he changed it. And instead of making just a head of gold, he made the whole thing of gold. Do you know what that represented? In other words, the king was basically saying, God, I know what you told me, but, but I don't really care what you told me. My kingdom is going to last forever. He made the whole thing of gold, and then he called the whole world to come and bow down and worship that image, forcing God's people to break God's law. Now, friends, I want you to consider with me that the king did not disregard the dream. He, re he, he received it, but then he modified it. He did what? He changed it, and he twisted it for his own personal glory, and he called people to worship it. That's what ancient Babylon did, friends. They changed God's Word for their own personal glory. They did not totally disregard the Word. They took it, and they modified it. They changed it for their own personal glory. And friends, end-time Babylon will do the exact same thing. End-time spiritual Babylon is an organized system of confusion that does not so much reject God's Word. They take God's Word and they modify it. They change it. They subtract and add to it for their own benefit and for their own personal glory. Does that make sense? Interesting. Now, when you study ancient Babylon... We have to ask the question, why did Babylon fall? 
because ancient Babylon fell for the same reason why mystical Babylon in Revelation will fall as well. Remember God said Babylon the great is fallen is fallen? Well, why did the Old Testament Babylon fall? Well, you can read it in Daniel chapter 5. You remember the writing on the wall? We studied this before. How God came and wrote with letters of fire upon the walls of Babylon the message of judgment. And on that night, Babylon, that ancient kingdom, fell. But do you, do you remember what caused them to fall? The mistake that the king made when he told his servants, bring the golden cups so that he could drink his old wine of Babylon in those golden cups. And remember, where did those golden cups come from? From the sacred temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so he was, he was basically saying, bring me those sacred cups that were used in the Lord's service, in the service of Jehovah. Bring me those cups because I want to drink my wine, my old Babylonian wine in those sacred cups. And what the king was doing there, friends, he was mixing the sacred and the profane together. He was mixing that which was holy with that which was not holy, unholy. And friends, when he made the mistake of mixing the sacred and the profane, that was like the last straw that broke the camel's back. When he did that, judgment fell on Babylon, and Babylon came to an end on that night. It fell, why? Because they mixed holy with the unholy, the sacred and the profane. And end-time Babylon is fallen, is fallen, because she does the exact same thing. She mixes the sacred and the profane. She mixes the holy with that which is unholy. She mixes truth and error together. And as a result, almost the whole world is become drunk, spiritually intoxicated by the wine of her false doctrine. And so, it's a very serious system, friends. Now, does God have His people in this system, yes or no? Oh, yes, of course. Many of God's people are in this system. They don't even realize it. And so, God exposes the system. Why? Because He loves the people in the system. He wants to save them. He doesn't want them to be deceived by a, truth and, a mixture of truth and error. No, friends. So he exposes the system because he loves the people. Therefore, none of us need to be offended by what we're about to hear tonight. Can you say amen? It's not against individuals. It's against a system of confusion. And so who is she? Who is Babylon? Let's read her characteristics as we go to Revelation chapter 17. Please turn to Revelation 17 with me. I need you to pray for me tonight. Revelation 17, this is the most difficult message in the whole seminar. And the reason why, friends, is, man, God speaks with very strong language. I mean, He uses the words of a harlot and drunkenness to describe deception and apostasy. And those are strong words. And so we really need the Holy Spirit to help us tonight. Revelation 17, the Bible tells us concerning this woman, this apostate church, in verse 1 it says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vows and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. I want you to write down these characteristics as we go through them together. 
Number one, the Bible calls this woman a whore or a harlot. Now, as I mentioned, that's a very strong word. But remember, we're not dealing with a literal prostitute. We're dealing with a church. A woman in Bible prophecy represents a church. And a harlot woman would represent an apostate church or an unfaithful church. And you can write down these scriptures on the screen and look it up when you get home. In Ezekiel chapter 16, it describes a woman that is in harlotry, and God clearly says that that represents his people who were unfaithful to him. He can also write down James chapter 4 and verse 4, where the Bible says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the Bible says that when we become a friend with, uh, with the world, that's like committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. And so when the Bible describes this woman that's in harlotry, it simply represents a church that is not remaining faithful to her heavenly husband, Jesus Christ. It's an unfaithful system. If that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now the Bible tells us that this woman is sitting upon what? many waters. Well, what does that mean? Friends, I'm not going to give you my interpretation because it doesn't matter what I think. Let's see what the Bible says. What does the waters represent in the Bible? Well, according to Revelation 17 and verse 15, it represents multitudes of people. And since we're right there, why don't we go ahead and read that? Revelation 17 verse 15, the Bible says, And he said unto me, The waters which you saw where the horse sits are what? Peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So when it says that she's sitting upon many waters, it simply means that she is supported by many peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, it is a worldwide church with a worldwide membership. In other words, her influence touches all the world. She is sitting upon many waters, which represents multitudes of people all over the world that speak different tongues, that is, different languages in the world. So it's a worldwide church supported by many people all over the world. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now notice the next characteristic in verse 2. Verse 2 says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Characteristic number three, write it down. It says that she is committing fornication with the kings of the earth. Now, friends, kings of the earth, are those religious or are those political powers? Kings of the earth, those are political powers, friends. And so here's an apostate woman committing spiritual fornication with kings, which simply means that it's a church that is in bed with the state. It is a church-state union together. And friends, church and state together, that's spiritual harlotry according to the Bible. Because you remember what Jesus said. He said, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and give unto God that which is God's. In other words, we should keep them separate. Church and state should be separate according to the Bible, according to Jesus. But here's a woman that is in bed with the, with the state, in bed with the kings, a church-state union together. And then characteristic number four is found in verse 3. Notice what it says, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a what color beast? Scarlet-colored beast, full of the names of blasphemy, having how many heads? Seven heads and ten horns. So this woman is sitting upon a beast that is of scarlet-colored, 
and this beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now, what does this mean? Characteristic number four, write it down. She sits upon a seven-headed beast. Well, we already learned before that in prophecy, a beast is a symbol of a what? Of a kingdom, of course. You can find that in Daniel 7 and verse 17. Write it down. It's on the screen. Now, this beast or kingdom has seven heads. Now, what do those heads represent? According to Revelation 17 and verse 9, it represents seven mountains or seven hills. Let's read it. In fact, it's right there. Revelation 17, 9 tells us, here's the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven what? <coughs> mountains on which the woman sits. So friends, when we let the Bible interpret itself, it's not difficult to know what God is trying to communicate. Here's a woman, which is a, a church, that's a harlot, which means she's apostate. She's sitting upon a beast, which is a kingdom, that has seven heads, which means seven mountains. In other words, it is an apostate church that is located in a kingdom that has seven mountains or seven hills. In other words, the geographical location of the church is in a kingdom of seven hills, seven mountains. If that makes sense, would you please say amen? She's sitting upon a beast with seven heads, a kingdom with seven mountains, seven hills. Now notice the next characteristic. In verse 4, the Bible says, And the woman which, excuse me, and the woman was arrayed in what color? Purple and scarlet color, and decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of, what's in the cup? Abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Characteristic number five, write it down. It says she is dressed in purple and scarlet colors. Purple and scarlet colors. And then we're going we're gonna to find out what that means in just a moment. Characteristic six, it says that in her hand is a golden cup full of what? Abominations. Now question, what is an abomination according to the Bible? Notice how the Bible defines an abomination. In Proverbs 12, verse 22, the Bible says that lying lips are, are what? Abomination to the Lord. So in the golden cup, is the wine of Babylon, which represents abominations, and the abominations are lying lips. In other words, in her cup is a bunch of lies, and she causes the world to drink of those lies. And that's what's caused the spiritual confusion in the world. And so write it down, friends. It, it, a golden cup of abomination simply means that she intoxicates people with the wine of deception and lives. Uh, next characteristic in verse 5. The Bible says in verse 5, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So notice, friends, the Bible says that she is the mother of harlots. Now, friends, in order for you to be a mother, you have to have what? You have to have children. So here's a church that is actually the mother church that had some daughter churches. Write it down, friends. Characteristic seven, other apostate churches came out of her. She is the main apostate church, but she had some daughters who were also harlots, which means that other apostate churches would end up coming out from her. And then notice the last characteristic in verse six. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints 
and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So characteristic eight, the Bible says that she, this woman herself, is drunk with the blood of the saints, with the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, here's a church that put to death the people of God. They persecuted God's people. That's the eighth characteristic. Now, some people think that this woman represents Nero and the pagan Roman Empire, but it can't because in prophecy, a woman is not representative of a state. It's representative of a church. So it's an apostate church that has these eight characteristics. And friends, when you go through the characteristics, now we ask the question, who is this woman? Who could she be? Who is this religious and political church-state system that caused the whole world to become spiritually confused, intoxicated, and drunk with the wine of lies and false doctrine that persecuted God's people, that is in bed with the state, that sits upon a kingdom that has exactly seven mountains or seven hills? Friends, there's only one church-state system on earth that fits every single one of these characteristics. But friends, before we tell you what it is, let me uh, ask you the question. You remind me. Does God have many of his people in Babylon, yes or no? Yes. Does he love the people in the system? Of course. And the reason why he gives such a strong message is because he loves the people. He does not want them to be deceived and led astray. He died for each and every one of them, and many of them in the system are sincere, beautiful, loving, wonderful people that are living up to all the light they have. And God sees their sincerity. He recognizes them as his children. I have family members that are a part of this system. They're not bad people. Many of them simply have never had the opportunity to learn these things. And so no one needs to feel offended or attacked. We're not dealing with people. It's the system itself that God exposes because he loves the people in the system. Can you say amen? And he doesn't want the people to stay there. Remember, in Revelation 18.4, he says, come out of her my people. God is pleading in love for his people to come out of this system. And so who is this woman? Well, friends, it's the same power we described before. The little horn power in Daniel 7, the Antichrist beast system in Revelation 13, it's the same power, friends. It's none other than the Roman church state system, not the people, the system itself. And friends, when you think about the papacy, it's both a city and it's a church. It's a church-state union. And, and friends, the papacy fits every one of these characteristics. I mean, think about it. It says that it's a harlot. And friends, the way in which the church began in history, as we studied last night, was by compromising with the pagans. That's how pagan Rome ended up becoming papal Rome. It's when they lowered their standards and allowed pagan idols and the pagan day of worship and pagan practices to come into the church. And the Bible calls that harlotry, friends. It's unfaithfulness. It's apostasy. It's compromise. Number two, sits upon many waters. The Roman church state system is the largest church in the world, friends having members all over the world in every nation and every tongue and every people. It sits upon many waters supported by many people all over the world. Characteristic three, she's committing fornication with the kings of the earth. It's this church that is united with political powers all over the world. Many countries send ambassadors to the Vatican. It's a church-state union together. Characteristic four, she's sitting upon a beast with seven heads. 
a kingdom of seven mountains. And friends, the Vatican is known as the city of seven hills. I was just there a few years ago. I walked around all those hills. You can see it for yourself. It's the city of seven hills. The location of the church, the headquarters is right there where ancient Rome was, the city of seven hills. Characteristic number five, uh, five is that she was arrayed in purple and scarlet colors. And friends, it's interesting that these are the colors they love to adorn themselves in, purple and scarlet colors. Those represent the colors of the priesthood in the Old Testament, but this is an apostate priesthood. It's a false priesthood adorning in purple and scarlet colors. And then characteristic six, in her hand is a golden cup full of what? Abominations, but specifically it's the wine of Babylon, which is not fresh grape juice, but it's old alcoholic wine. In the cup is the wine that's full of abominations, which represents false doctrine that brings spiritual confusion. We studied that just a moment ago. And friends, it's interesting that there is only one religious institution, one religious institution on earth that is centered around a golden cup full of old, intoxicating alcoholic wine. And it's none other than the Catholic Mass, friends. When the priest lifts up that golden cup that's full of old wine, not fresh grape juice like Jesus uh, shared, not unfermented wine, but fermented wine, they say a prayer and they claim to have the power to change that alcoholic wine into the literal blood of Jesus Christ. They say that this is the literal, it's not a symbol, it's literal. And if you drink of this, all your sins are washed away and, and therefore you can live however you want to live as long as you come to Mass every so often to make sure that, that, that you partake of this literal uh, beverage. And many people think that by doing so, they are actually being forgiven. But friends, the cup of grape juice that Jesus passed at the Last Supper wasn't his literal blood. It was symbolic, friends. It was symbolic of partaking of Christ in his word. The flesh of Jesus is the word of God, friends. The word was made flesh, the Bible says. And so in the cup is, a, is abominations, thinking that man can actually create God. That's an abomination. And many people have become confused by it. Sincere, but sincerely confused. Number seven, the mother church, the Catholic church is known as the mother church. And from her came daughter churches. Isn't that right? And what were the daughter churches that came out of the Catholic church? Protestant churches that broke away. She is known as the mother church. She calls herself that. We're going to read a quotation that bears that out. And number eight, she is drunk with the blood of the saints. And friends, it's a known fact of history that the Roman church state system shed more blood than any other country or institution in the history of this world. During the Dark Ages, at the hands of the church, over 50 million Christians died during the Dark Ages. Why? Because they wanted to remain faithful to the teachings of the Bible instead of the mixture of truth and error that came from the hands of the church. And so it's clear, friends, this apostate woman, it can't be Nero, it can't be the pagan Roman Empire because that's a political system, but a woman represents a church. It must be the papacy. Every single characteristic fits. And friends, remember, the Bible says that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. How many times? Twice. And why twice? Because not only is the mother church fallen, but also the daughter churches that came out from her. 
the daughter churches were also called harlots. And who are the daughter churches? Protestant churches that broke away. Well, friends, let me ask you a question. When a baby is born into the world, does the baby begin in harlotry, yes or no? Of course not, friends. When a baby is born into the world, that little child is innocent and pure. Jesus said if we want to enter the kingdom, we must be like a little child. He always spoke of the little children in the context of innocence and purity. And so too, when these daughter Protestant churches first broke away from the mother Catholic church, they began pure and innocent. God was using them to bring correction. They were protesting against error. That's what the word Protestant means, one that protests against error. So God was using them like we studied last night to restore different parts of truth. But as time went on, we find that some of these same daughter Protestant churches actually went back to drink the wine of the mother church. They stopped protesting eventually. You realize that in 1999, the Lutheran church apologized to the Catholic church for the Reformation. They said, oh, it was all a big mistake. And friends, if Martin Luther could hear that, he would roll around in his grave. The Methodist church too, they signed the same agreement and many of these daughter churches are, are apologizing for, for, for what happened in history when God was actually using them to bring reformation within the, the church. And so we find that a lot of these daughter churches have become apostate as well. And so who are the daughters? It represents apostate Protestantism. In other words, Protestants who no longer protest and the reason why the Bible says it's fallen is fallen twice is because both the mother and the daughter churches have fallen. Both the mother church and the daughter churches constitute Babylon. So when God says, come out of her, my people, it's not just talking about the mother Catholic church. It's talking about any church that has compromised, watered down the message, and has mixed truth and error together. God says, no come out of her my people why because friends babylon is not going to be reformed according to prophecy it's going to be destroyed but before it's destroyed god's faithful people who love the lord jesus and are faithful to him and him alone are, are going to come out of babylon and friends when you think about it if you come out of something simultaneously you're coming in to something else isn't that right when i come out of one room i'm coming into another room and so too, as God's people come out of Babylon, what are they coming into? They're coming into the pure woman clothed in white, God's faithful church. Can you say amen? And remember, we studied last night how God is bringing all of his people from all the different folds and, and, and flocks and churches and denominations. He wants to bring them together into the one fold in unity, in spirit, and in truth. So God says, come out. And as they come out, they're coming in to the pure woman, the beloved bride of Christ, and the one that has a pure faith, the faith of Jesus. And friends, I want to be a part of that woman, that, that church, that system, that, that movement. Can you say amen? And so we find a contrast in Revelation, a very distinctive contrast of two women, a woman in white, pure, spotless robes, and a woman dressed immodestly riding upon a beast two types of churches. And friends, listen, whenever there's a contrast, there's a choice that we need to make. Which one are we going to be a part of? God's pure church or the apostate churches of the world? And friends, listen, we're going to study the pure woman at 7 o'clock and the characteristics. But before we get to that, 
I want to zero in a little bit more in detail of the beverage that is offered by Jesus and by the woman. You see, there's also a contrast of cups. The old wine of Babylon versus the new wine of the blood of Christ. You see, remember, for every truth, Satan has a what? A counterfeit. And what is a counterfeit? It's the mixture of truth and error together. And so the old wine of Babylon is basically a counterfeit of the new wine of Christ's blood. And so if the old wine represents lies or false doctrine, the new wine represents the truth. And remember, Jesus said this is the, 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 the New Testament in my blood. It represents the truth, the life of Christ, the teachings of Jesus. And that's what Jesus gave. And, and his teachings, his truth, his life, his blood brings spiritual health and blessings and nourishment. But the old wine of Babylon, it has a different effect. It intoxicates people. It brings spiritual confusion. And friends, when you are intoxicated, you can't walk straight. You end up falling. Isn't that right? And that's why it says it's fallen, because it's drunk. Now, friends, listen, I know that that's a strong word, but that's the word the Bible uses to describe a system that has mixed truth and error together. And so let's zero in now at the wine that is being spread throughout the churches of the world that Babylon is giving. Notice Revelation 17, 4 says, having a golden cup in her hand, full of what again? <clears throat> uh, the word abomination means something that is very hateful in the eyes of God, repulsive to Him. And in the cup is abominations and filthiness of her what? In other words, these abominations will lead to filthiness and it will lead to spiritual fornication or unfaithfulness to God and His message. So now the next question is, what are the specific abominations of Babylon? What are these intoxicating lies? Tonight, I want to share with you four main components. How many? That's in the wine of Babylon. And friends, these four main components are very serious. It's a counterfeit of the truth. So notice, write them down. Number one is Satan's deception regarding salvation. That is how a person is saved. Notice how the Bible defines the word abomination. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 1, the Bible tells us, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect. A bull or sheep that has any what? blemish or de defect, for that is on what? Abomination to the Lord your God. In other words, God says that if you offer to me a, an animal that has any defect, any blemish, even though you are sincere, that offering, that sacrifice, that worship is an abomination to me. Why? Because every single animal that was to be offered to God had to be perfect. It had to have no blemish, no defect. You know why? Because every animal that was slain in the Old Testament was to typify the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God. And the only way Jesus could be our sacrifice and our Savior is that He had to be without sin, without spot or blemish. For if Jesus sinned even once, He would have been a sinner and He would have needed a Savior and He could not be our sacrifice. So the point is, is that we need to offer to God perfection. Because the only way we're going to be saved is by the perfection of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
But here's the thing. Listen, listen to the application. When we offer to God our own works, our own righteousness as a means of salvation, we're offering to God a blemish sacrifice. Because the Bible says that all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Notice Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. When we say to God, God, I'm a good person. I I help out in society. I'm good in my community, and I'm a positive individual. I pay my taxes. I'm morally upright. I give my tithes. Lord, I'm a good person, and therefore I should be saved. When we offer to God our own works and righteousness and good deeds as a means of salvation, we're giving to Him a blemished sacrifice because all our righteousness are tainted with selfishness and spiritual pride, and that's not going to enable us to enter into the kingdom of God. We're only going to be saved by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? But here's the problem, friends. Here's the problem. That's all we have to offer to God. There's nothing good in us that we can even offer Him. All we can give him is a bunch of filthy rags and patches of lies. There's nothing good we can offer to God. But here's the good news. Christianity is not about what we offer to God. It's about what God is offering to us. And what is he offering to us? His own righteousness. His sacrifice. His perfection. Covering us by faith. Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 118. It says, come now and let us reason together. Notice God doesn't say change first and behave and do the right thing before you come. He says, come now just as you are. Says the Lord, let us reason together, says the Lord. And then notice, here's the promise. Though your sins are like what color? Scarlet. Notice, friends, scarlet is the color of sin. What does the woman clothe with? What color? Scarlet. Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be what color? White as snow. The pure bride is clothed in white. White as snow. Though they be red like crimson, your sins, they shall be as what? And so here's the good news, friends. When we come to Jesus just as we are and accept his mercy by faith, our scarlet red sins will become white as wool. White wool. And friends, the only way you can get white wool is by an animal sacrifice. It represents the blessed Jesus. Can you say amen? And that's why it says in Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. But friends, what happened was this. The Babylonian churches began to teach that you can save yourself by your own righteousness, by your own offerings, by your own works of penance. And so they substituted the the, the blood of Jesus with the false intoxicating wine of human works. And the church actually taught that if you whip your body and shed your own blood, you can pay for your own sins. And friends, it's tragic that many people are still doing this today especially in Latin and Asian countries. They have uh, processions during Easter where they whip themselves and they torture, they crucify themselves, thinking that by doing this, they can actually pay for their own sins. They're offering to God a blemish sacrifice, and the Bible calls that an abomination. But friends, not only in the Catholic Mother Church, but even in Protestant churches where people uh, say, you know, I'm a good person. I go to church once a week, and I, 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 I pull in a full days of work. 
I'm nice to my children and my wife, and therefore I ought to be saved. Well, friends, that's an imperfect sacrifice. And so there's a contrast, and you have a choice. Either you're going to drink the wine of your own human works or the grace of Jesus. And friends, I'll take God's grace above my works any day. Amen? The grace of God alone is how we're going to be saved, friends. Now notice, the second abomination is Satan's deception regarding the law of God. Before we get to that, I'm reminded of the song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross of Jesus do we cling. Can you say amen? So don't ever forget that, friends. We're saved by His grace and His grace alone. Now, the second deception is Satan's deception regarding the law of God. You see, notice how else the Bible defines an abomination. In Proverbs 28, verse 9, the Bible says, He that turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be what? The Bible says that when we ignore the law of God, when we turn our ear away from it and then try to pray, that prayer then becomes an abomination. In the cup is abominations. A part of it was a teaching that we can ignore and disregard the law of God. And friends, Babylon had a problem with especially two of God's laws, the second and the fourth commandment. You see, ancient Babylon was also a center of idolatry. They would worship idols and statues and pagan gods. In fact, notice pagan intercessory gods. These are the, the intercessory intermediary gods that the pagans would pray to in order for the supreme God in heaven to hear them. They would have to ask these gods to intercede for them. And so in Egypt, it was Isis and Osiris. Scandinavia, their names were Frigga and Baldur. In Rome, it was Venus and Adonis. Babylonia, Ishtar and Tammuz. In Phoenicia, it was Ashtoreth and Baal. So these were intermediary gods that they would appeal to to intercede for them so that the big God in heaven could hear them. It's a pagan practice. It's idolatry in, it, in its purest form. And we find that this practice of idolatry actually crept within the church. It says, history tells us, pagan ceremonies were established in Christian churches until Christianity exhibited so grotesque and hideous a form that its best features were lost and its early loveliness, or excuse me, Yes, early loveliness, altogether what? Destroyed. How so? Well, friends, the same practices of idolatry crept within the church. They began to bow down and pray to images of saints, like the Virgin Mary and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And they would pray to the saints, asking the saints to intercede for them so that the Father would hear them. But friends, the Bible tells us that we only have one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. We can go directly to God through Jesus Christ, His Son. Can you say amen? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 7, 25, The graven images of their gods shall you burn with fire, for it is on what? Abomination to the Lord thy God. Friends, to pray to anyone or anything except Jesus is an abomination, and that's what's in the cup. And in 1 Timothy 2, 5, it says there's only, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Jesus is the only one we ought to pray to, friends. He is the one mediator between God and man. And so Babylon, what Babylon does is they offer idolatry, confessing your sins to a man, confessing your sins to a priest, praying to the saints. And friends, we see that in the mother church, but we also see it in the daughter churches when Protestants say, yes, I hear what the Bible is saying, but let me first go and ask my pastor what he thinks about it. And people go with what the pastor says instead of what the Bible says. And friends, that's putting a pastor in the place of God. Now, you may not be praying to the pastor or worshiping the pastor, but when you esteem your pastor's word above God's word, that is a form of idolatry. It is abomination, friends. We must go by what the word of God says. Can you say amen? And so Babylon not only had a problem with the second commandment that had to do with idolatry, it also had a problem with the fourth commandment that had to do with remembering the seven-day Sabbath because ancient Babylon was also the center of sun worship. They would worship the sun. Notice what history says. In ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. Sun worship is strictly a pagan practice. And do you know what day the pagans would worship the sun god, especially? Sunday, the first day of the week. That was the pagans' day of worship. And so we find that this abomination of sun and Sunday worship actually crept within the churches of Babylon. And God showed Ezekiel this terrible abomination in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. Please write it down. Ezekiel 8, 15 and 16, the Bible says, Turn again, God says, and you will see greater abominations than these. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple. Listen, friends, they had turned away from the temple. They had turned away from the intercession of God. And when they turned away from the temple, they were still in the temple. Notice, they're, they're in the temple, but they're turning away from it. And uh, uh, it says their faces were toward which direction? The east. And they worshiped the sun toward the east. Here we find a terrible abomination that God's people were committing. And that was that they were in God's house, but instead of worshiping God, who were they worshiping? The sun. Sun worship in the house of God was a terrible abomination. And that uh, same abomination is in the cup that almost all the Christian churches are drinking of today. Sun worship in the form of sun day worship. In fact, notice the mother Catholic church agrees that this is a practice that came from paganism. Notice what the church says, their own words. The sun was the foremost god with heathendom. The sun has worshipers at this hour in Persia and in other lands. There is in truth something royal and kingly about the sun, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the son of justice. Hence the church in these countries would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name, It shall remain consecrated, sanctified. And thus the pagan, what? Sunday, dedicated to Balder, became the Christian Sunday, sacred to Jesus. They acknowledge, friends, that worshiping on the first day of the week was a pagan practice. It's when the pagans worshiped the sun god. And they adopted this into the church during the time of compromise and apostasy. Friends, make no mistake about it. Any church that is worshiping on the first day of the week, despite what God clearly says in his word, has become confused with the wine of Babylon. 
Now, they're sincere, and many of them don't realize it, and God recognizes their sincerity, and if they're sincere and they don't know any better, God accepts them and their sincerity. Can you say amen? But at the same time, God does not want us to remain in the darkness. He wants to bring us to the light. In fact, notice what the Baptist manual used to say. The Baptist even agreed with this. Any Baptist here? Notice what the Baptist manual used to say. What a pity that it, talking about Sunday worship, that it comes branded with the mark of paganism and Christian with the name of the Son God, then adopted and sanctioned by the papal apostasy and bequeathed as a sacred legacy to Protestantism. So according to the Baptist manual in the past, where did Sunday worship come from? It came from paganism, then to the papacy, then to Protestantism. But it's a, the Bible describes it as an abomination. Sun worship in the form of Sunday worship. And friends, why is this such a big deal? Many people ask, you know, it's just a day. But do you remember what the day represents? It's to remind us that God is the creator, that He made all things, that He is our maker and our creator, and that He's the true God, and He's the true Lord, and He's the true Savior. That's what the day represents. So listen, friends, it's more than just what day you choose to worship. It's about who your God is. And remember, Satan wants to be God. He wants to be worshiped. So if God set apart a special day that reminds us that He is God and He is to be worshipped, because Satan wants to be God, He sets up a counterfeit day because He wants to be our God. And it so happens that the day that He set apart is Sunday, the first day of the week. And friends, it's, it's serious. I know that this is strong language, friends. Don't get me wrong. This is a very difficult message to hear, and it's a very difficult message to share. But remember, God speaks in no uncertain terms because He loves His people, and He does not want us to be led astray by a mixture of truth and error together. Can He say amen? And not only that, but Babylon is also a counterfeit creator. Do you realize that? The Sabbath reminds us that God is the true creator. Babylon is a counterfeit creator because notice, she is the mother of harlots. And the only way you can be a mother is if you have children, and, and having children is an act of creation. But friends, she has not created good things. The Bible says she's the mother of harlots. In fact, notice what, what they say concerning themselves. Reverend John O'Brien, famous Catholic author in the book Faith of Millions, here's what he says concerning the mother church. He says, notice, but since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church, observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Here, the Catholic author is pointing out an inconsistency in those who claim to believe in the Bible and the Bible only. That's Protestants. They say, isn't it curious you claim to believe just in the Bible, and yet you're keeping Sunday instead of the Sabbath, when the Bible doesn't say anything about keeping Sunday? And then notice what he says. Yes, of course, it is inconsistent, but the change was made. What change? The change from Sabbath to Sunday. The change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was what? Was born. And they, that's the daughter churches, Protestants, they have continued to observe custom even though it rests upon the authority of the church and not upon the Bible. That observance, what observance? Sunday worship. That observance remains the reminder of the mother church 
from which non-Catholic sects broke away, like a boy running away from his mother, but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. And those are strong words, friends. That's what the Mother Church says. They're basically challenging Protestants and saying it's impossible for you to claim to take your religion directly from the Bible and yet worship on the first day of the week, Sunday worship. That's a sign of our authority. And so these daughter churches are looking just like the mother in keeping the first day of the week. In fact, notice another one, very strong. James Cardinal Gibbons, famous Catholic author, he wrote, Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives, either Protestantism and keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicism and, keeping, and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is what? Is impossible. And that's true, friends. It's true. If we truly believe in the Bible and the Bible only, then we're going to keep the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, Saturday. And if we're, if we're not serious about it, then we'll go ahead and keep Sunday the first day of the week. And so here we find Babylon, the churches of Babylon, offer an abomination of the first day of the week, Sunday worship, but God says the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And friends, I'll take God's day above any other day. Amen? It's a special sign of a special relationship, friends. It's not just a day to go to church, but it's 24 hours of sacred, holy time with the blessed Christ. Now, as we continue, two more things I want to share. Number three, Satan's deception regarding death. Remember, in the cup is wine that intoxicates, confuses. It's called an abomination. Notice how else the Bible defines an abomination. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12, please write it down. It says, There shall not be found among you a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead for all who do these things are on what? Abomination to the Lord. So another definition of abomination is spiritualism. Talking to dead people, praying to people who have passed away, trying to communicate with, 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 with these spirits. It says it's an abomination. And this abomination of spiritualism crept within the churches of Babylon. You see, friends, remember, we studied this before. It was the concept of the Babylonians that an immortal soul left the body at death and lived on in a state of consciousness. Do you remember we studied that? And that's what the serpent said. You won't surely die, but you'll be like God. In other words, your body may die, but your soul will live on because the soul is immortal. That was a Babylonian belief, and that belief crept into the church. Notice what one historian said. The pagan doctrine of the immortality of the human soul crept into the back door of the church. And where do we see this doctrine, this abomination in the church? In the form of people praying to the saints, praying to the Virgin Mary when, when the Virgin Mary is clearly dead in the grave waiting the resurrection. So it's in the form of praying to deceased saints. It's also in the form of praying for our loved ones to come out of purgatory as if there's any consciousness in death but it's also found in the daughter Protestant churches in the belief that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. That's the doctrine of the immortal soul. Remember, friends, the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes, the dead in Christ shall rise first. They're going to come up out of the grave, and families that have been separated by death will be reunited in life, and as we ascend to meet the Lord in the air, it's then that this mortal must put on 
immortality. In other words, the soul does not receive immortality until the resurrection at the last trump when the Lord Jesus comes again. Can you say amen? But friends, listen, when we believe that the dead are not really dead and that there's consciousness in the grave, that belief paves the way for demons in disguise to come and deceive us. These apparitions of the Virgin Mary, friends, that's a, that's a demon in disguise. That can't be Mary according to the Bible. She's in the grave being visited by spirits. It's a demon in disguise. Satan did it in the past, and he's doing it right now in the present. And that's the reason why in Revelation 18.2, it says that Babylon has become the habitations of what? Devils. Why? Because of this belief in the doctrine of the immortal soul. Because of this belief, they become the habitations of devils. And that's why it's very dangerous. We must know what the Bible clearly says concerning these things so that we're not led astray by a seducing spirit and a doctrine of devil. Can you say amen? <clears throat> that's why it's important, friends. And then the final one, the last one, Satan's deception regarding health. You didn't realize that, did you? That in the cup is old alcoholic wine. It's a deception regarding health. You remember that one of the first things ancient Babylon did when Daniel and his friends were brought into Babylonian captivity, what was the first thing the king tried to do? Change the diet of the God's people, offering them old wine and unclean meats, trying to change their diet. And friends, that's what Babylon in Revelation does too. They say you can eat whatever you want to eat. You can drink whatever you want to drink. It doesn't matter. But notice what Daniel and his three friends did. Daniel 1 verse 8, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. But friends, Babylon wants to change the diet of people in order to cloud their minds so that they can't understand and discern truth as revealed in the Word. Notice how else the Bible defines an abomination. Deuteronomy 14.3, God says, Thou shalt not eat any what? Abominable thing. The Bible says that when we eat unclean animals, it's an abomination. And that's exactly what Babylon teaches, that you can eat whatever you want to eat. It doesn't matter that the health laws have been done away with. That's what many churches are teaching. But what does the Bible teach? In 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17, God says, know ye not that you're, you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The Bible tells us that we ought to give God the glory in the things that we eat and drink and whatever we do. God wants us to be the healthiest and the happiest and the holiest people walking on earth. He wants our bodies to be healthy so that our minds can be clear so that we can hear His voice and be in tune with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Satan is attacking the nervous system. He's attacking every, every part of our physical being in order to destroy our mind, in order to destroy our souls. And that's what's in the golden cup, friends, the wine of the deception of, uh, regarding health, the health principles. And so, as we get ready to close tonight, we find a contrast. The wine of Babylon, which is a counterfeit of the blood of Jesus. And there's a contrast. There's also a choice. Which one are we going to drink of? 
One brings spiritual life, nourishment, and health. The other one brings spiritual intoxication, confusion, and death. Friends, I want to partake of the blood of Jesus. Can you say amen? And the Bible says that the life is in the blood. And when we partake of His blood by faith, as we feast upon the Word and, 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 and be cleansed with His blood, we become a partaker of the life of Christ. The Bible tells us that Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Why twice? Because not just the mother church has fallen, but also the daughter apostate Protestant churches. And so when God says in Revelation 18:4, come out of her, my people, is not just talking about the mother, but it's talking about any church that has compromised, watered down, and even flat out rejected the clear teachings of the Bible. Does God have his people in those churches? Yes or no? Of course, he said, my people. He claims them as his own because many are sincere, living up to all the light they have and have never heard some of the things that you've heard in this seminar. And if they never heard it before and they're sincere, God sees them as his people, but he does not want them to remain in any institution or any church that mixes truth and error together. And so in these last days, God says, come out of her. He wants to bring all of his sheep together from all the different folds, churches, and denominations. And he wants to bring us in unity, in spirit, and in truth. And friends, remember, when God calls us to come, Come out simultaneously, he's calling us to come in to the pure church, the movement of the last days that has the accumulated knowledge of every other movement that came before, that brings all the truth together and gives it the whole message to all nations of the world. And friends, what is that woman? Who is that woman? Revelation 14, 12 says, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here's God's final movement. Those who have faith and those who keep God's commandments. And they not only have faith, they not only have works, but they have a faith that works because they love Jesus. And that's whom God is calling us to be a part of. I want to be a part of that movement. How about you? Would you like to know which movement that is? Would you like to know? Are you sure? If so, let me hear you say amen. If you're serious, let me hear you say amen again. Amen. Well, we're going to study that at 7 o'clock. Amen. But let me close now. Let me close with this story. You just heard a very strong message. But I want you to know it comes in deep love deep concern for all of God's children. Listen to this story as we close. Back in the day, in the early centuries, there was an enemy army that laid siege to the capital of Spain. King Alfonso, the king of Spain at that time, led the defense. But tragically for the king, the enemy army ended up capturing the king's beloved son. And they would make the most out of their royal prisoner. They built the gallows in full view of the capital city. And the enemy forced that young prince to stand at the gallows under a big sign that read, Alfonso, either your city or your son. Either your city or your son. What a decision for a father to make. Can you imagine it? Alfonso on the inside of the city, he could see the words, he could see the sign, he could see his son, and now he had a decision. Will he surrender the city in order to save his son? Or will he let his son perish in order to save his city? 
I can imagine the officers watching the face of the king, wondering what decision he would make. But it didn't take long. That king sent the message back to the enemy. And here's what the king said, friends. He said, let my son die so that my people may live. Let my son die so that my people may live. Wow. Reminds me of another story that we're all involved in tonight. Thousands of years ago, there was another enemy that laid siege to planet Earth, claiming all of its inhabitants as his own. And when Satan said, this is my territory, there was another king in heaven that had a terrible decision to make. Will he send his son and let his son be crucified to save the people? Or will he let the people perish and preserve his son? I can imagine the angels <clears throat> looking upon the face of the king. What a decision for a father to make. But that same king, that king said the same thing as Alfonso did. He basically said, let my son die so that my people may live. And that young prince, he wasn't captured. He voluntarily walked out of the city of God in Jer New Jerusalem. He voluntarily submitted his life into the hands of the enemy, and he voluntarily laid down his life in death so that you and me may live. Jesus died for you. Will you live for him? He came out of New Jerusalem for you. Will you come out of Babylon for him? He says, come out of her, my people. I know it's hard sometimes thinking about leaving a church that perhaps we've been brought up in, a church that our families go to. But friends, if we recognize that that institution even though we might have been blessed and grown spiritually there, but if we recognize that it doesn't match the biblical characteristics of God's final movement, then it's time for us to decide to put Jesus number one above a man, above a church, above an institution, and to follow Him as He says, come out. How many want to say, Lord, I want to follow You. Give me the courage. Now listen, friends, there's two things God wants us to do. Number one, come out of Babylon. But number two, allow Him to take Babylon out of us. Because we might be physically out of Babylon. We might not be a part of an apostate church today. But maybe Babylon is in your heart. The world has a stronghold in your life. And so come out and let Babylon come out of you. Amen. We're in the world, but not of the world. A boat belongs in the water. It's in the water, but when the water gets in the boat, you got trouble. The same way we're in the world, but not of the world. How many of you thank, are thankful for Jesus? <clears throat> let us pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. Lord Jesus, you walked out of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, to die. And because of your sacrifice, you've made it possible for us to walk out of Babylon and live. And Lord, give us the courage to do just that tonight. We pray, Lord, that we would not only make the decision to come out of Babylon, any fallen church, but would you please take spiritual Babylon out of our hearts, uproot Babylon from our lives, and make us your people. Bless the food we're about to eat. Prepare us for the next message. In Christ's name we pray.